Welcome to the Flatline with your host, Rick Hughes. For the next 30 minutes, you'll be inspired, motivated, educated, but never manipulated. Now, your host, Rick Hughes. Morning and welcome to the Flatline. I'm your host, Rick Hughes. And for the next few minutes, please stay with me. It's going to be a time of motivation, inspiration, education, always, always done without any type of manipulation. That's right. We don't manipulate people. We don't play games. We're not trying to con you. We're not here to sell you anything. We're not here to ask you to join anything. This show is simply about giving you something, giving you accurate information, information that is designed to help you verify as well as identify the plan of God for your life. And if you're able to do that, you always have the freedom and the privacy to orient and adjust to the plan. That's up to you. But as host of The Flotline, my job is to be accurate, to be specific, not to tentilate your emotions, not to play games, but to give you the facts. Nothing but the facts, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And thus we have our name, The Flotline. F-L-O-T, Flotline. Flot stands for the forward line of troops. What we're seeking to do here is to teach you 10 unique problem-solving devices. The same thing my pastor taught me many years ago, 10 unique problem-solving devices. When we learn these 10 problem-solving devices, then they form a main line of resistance in our soul called a flat line, a forward line of troops. It's a military metaphor, a main line of resistance. When we use these 10 problem-solving devices, then we are able to stop the outside sources of adversity before they become the inside sources of stress. That's why we always say adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. Adversity is what circumstances do to you, and stress is what you do to yourself. If you live this unique life called the Christian life, it is a supernatural life. We do have supernatural power. We have the power of God, the Holy Spirit. We have the power of the, the uh, living Word of God. We have the power of prayer that we can call upon the Father instantly. We have all the advantages that the disadvantaged ones don't have. So, yes, we have a supernatural life. And if we tap into these resources of this supernatural life, we can live a life without fear. We can live a life without worry. We can live a life without bitterness, without anger, without guilt. It's a wonderful way to live free of mental attitude sins as well as free of any sort of sin of the tongue such as maligning and slandering and gossiping and putting people down in order for you to get ahead. And also you can live free of overt sins that so often trap us in our own lust cycles. I'm not saying you'll never sin again. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying you'll know how to recognize it, and you'll know when you're being tempted, and you'll know whether or not you've made the right decision to walk away from the temptation and to say no. That's up to you. But it requires that we both learn, myself included, the protocol plan of God. The protocol plan of God is critical once you understand your divine pardon. If you have been pardoned by God through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, his anointed son on the cross for your sin and my sin, if you've accepted that and believed in him, then you have a divine pardon. That's what we've been studying for the last five shows, the divine pardon. 
I'd like to wrap it up today with these things here so we can move on to another subject. But that pardon is free to any man, any woman, anywhere, anytime. If you will simply make that decision. The Bible says, whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And God is not a respecter of persons. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish. And God would like for you to change your mind about who Christ is. Is he his son? Is he the redeemer? Is he the one who paid the penalty for our sin? The answer is yes, he is. And when you believe that and you put your faith in him, the Bible says he that believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. First John chapter 5, verse 1. In John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's that verb believe again. What did Paul tell the jailer? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. So that's always the issue. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And have you expressed faith in that that belief? That's why we pray. That's why we tell the Father that we are willing to accept Christ as our Savior, as our Redeemer, as the one who paid for our sin. And when we're willing to do that, then that commitment is honored in prayer. And the Bible says God is not a liar. In 1 John 5, God is not a liar. says these things are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. Know it, not hope, know it. And you know that God will honor his word. Now, once we move into the royal family of God, it's a unique position We are unique individuals. We don't belong in this world. We are traveling through. The Bible says we are strangers, sojourners. We're passing through. And we have a unique lifestyle as royalty. That lifestyle is called a protocol plan. There's a plan God has designed for us to follow. And that plan means that a right thing has to be done in a right way. This is not complicated. This is simple. He wants us to become mature believers. We start off as baby believers when we believe in Jesus Christ. We accept Christ as our Savior, and we're baby believers. But as we begin to grow in grace, God wants us to become mature believers. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to familiarize ourselves with his plan and learn his plan so that we can do a right thing in a right way. Because if we do the right thing in a wrong way, then it's simply wrong. For example, as you've heard me say before, it's never wrong to pray. But Psalm 66:18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayer. So if you're praying with unconfessed sin in your life, God will not answer your prayer. Unless it's a prayer of rebound. The prayer of rebound is problem-solving device number one, where it says if we confess our sin, then he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to purify us from all of our wrongdoing. So if there is a prayer that you can pray that will be answered with sin in your life, it's the prayer of confessing the sin. So when you go to God and you confess your sin, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You are put back into fellowship with God because sin quenches the Holy Spirit and sin grieves the Holy Spirit. 
And we have been told in the Bible with imperative moods in both circumstances, do not grieve the Spirit of God, Ephesians 4.30, and don't quench the Holy Spirit. And sin does that. So using the proper protocol, we confess our sin to God. Therefore, anything we do while we are in fellowship with God, with no unconfessed sin in our life, then it is doing the right thing in the right way. Now, let me make this clear. Some people say, there's no way I can keep up with all of my sins. I realize that. I can't remember every sin I did yesterday, but I can remember the ones I confessed. And the Bible says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to purify us from all, that's the key word there, all unrighteousness even the ones you might not remember. And once I'm in fellowship, once I have the Holy Spirit controlling my life, then I can do the right things in the right way. Is it right to give to your local church? Yes. Is it right to pray? Yes. Is it right to sing in the choir and go on mission trips? Yes. But all these things can be done in the wrong way. And if you do a right thing in a wrong way, then it's simply called human good. Human good is you doing things for God in the energy of the flesh. Divine good is you doing the same thing, the same thing, except this time under the filling of the Holy Spirit, and it's called divine good. So human good does not compute with God. God cannot accept it. And divine good is rewardable by God. And human good and divine good is compared in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. And think about your life. Think about the times you've prayed. Think about the money you've given. Think about the mission trips you've been on. Think about the times you've gone to church. Was it human good? Did you do it with known sin in your life? Or was it divine good? Were you in fellowship, controlled by the Holy Spirit? Because if it was human good, then it is a flammable object called wood, hay, and straw in the Bible. Human good will not stand the test of fire in heaven. The Bible is clear. And listen to me as I read in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. For God has already placed Jesus as the one and only foundation, and no other foundation can be laid. That's almost like building a house on a concrete foundation. Some will use gold or silver or precious stones in building on the foundation, and others will use wood or grass or straw. And the quality of each person's work will be seen when the day of Christ exposes it. For on that day, fire will reveal everyone's work, and the fire will test it and show its real quality. If it was built on the foundation and survives the fire, the builder will receive a reward. But if your work is burnt up, then you will lose it. But you yourself will be saved as though you escaped through fire. And what does this mean? It means all the human good you did, all the right things you did in the wrong way while you had unconfessed sin in your life, they are destroyed. They did not glorify God and you will not be rewarded for it. But all the things you did while you were filled with the Holy Spirit those are the right things in the right way, and those are the gold and the silver and the precious stones, and those are the things that God will reward you for. 
You see, in heaven there will be a time when the Lord Jesus Christ will sit on the judgment seat, and he will examine each of us, and not our sins. Our sins are gone. Our sins are paid for. This is not double jeopardy. He's not going to run a projector and show everybody all of your sins. What he's going to examine us with is our works, the good deeds we produced while we were under the filling of the Holy Spirit. Those are the only things that will endure the test of the fire. The things we did in carnality while we had known sin in our life, then they will not last and they will be burned up and they will not count towards our record and they will not be rewarded. So this is where you have to remember there's no doubt God does provide eternal rewards for those who perform divine good and for those who advance to spiritual maturity. So if you want to get to heaven and have some rewards to lay at the feet of Christ, if you want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, then you must learn the protocol plan of God. You must learn how to do the right thing in the right way. For those who don't learn that, the loss will be great. Will they be in heaven? Sure they will be. That's fantastic. Will they have the crowns and the rewards to lay at the feet of Christ? No, they won't. Because all of our good deeds will be rejected if they are not done the right way. Done the wrong way, wood, hay, and stubble. Done the right way, gold, silver, and precious stones. Listen, an unbeliever can produce good deeds. An unbeliever can do religious actions. He can give money. He can be nice. He can be sweet. He can live a moral lifestyle. Lost men can go to church. They can do things like this, but that's not earning equity with God. Coming to church on Sunday, being a member of the, quote, what I call nod to God crowd, while failing to live the Christian way of life does not add up to divine good. Maybe you are a believer. Maybe you have accepted Christ, but you're not growing and you're not learning. And you know that. If you look at your own soul, are you growing in grace? Are you learning God's Word? Here's a question I have for you. Do you even have a hunger to learn God's Word? Has it ever occurred to you to study the Bible in depth? Because if it hasn't, then you just don't have an appetite. Remember, we have to stay filled with the Holy Spirit moment by moment. And remember that sin grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit. So if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to have that hunger because it's his job. It is his job to lead you into truth. It's his job to lead you into all truth so you can understand God's glorious plan for your life. In Matthew eight eighteen through 27, you'll find the story of some excuse makers, people that should have done something and they didn't. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ coming down from the mount where he gave the Beatitudes and talking to a huge crowd. And as it got late in the evening, the multitudes were all around him, and he gave a commandment to the disciples to get into a boat and go on to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And there are three individuals identified in the Bible who would not take that risk. They would not get in the boat with him, and they made excuses. One said, I will follow you wherever you go, Matthew 8.18. And at first glance, it appears he's willing. But upon a closer inspection, you will find why Jesus Christ scolded him with these words. He said, no, you won't. 
He said, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. See, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of that New Testament, it was written in the Greek language. And if you understand the Greek, Koine Greek of the New Testament, you will see what this man really said because he used a subjunctive verb, a kolotheu, I will follow you, conditional, subjunctive, if, if, if you really do go. In other words, he was suggesting that Jesus would not leave that crowd. And it appears that the security of that individual was found in that crowd. The people who loved him and supported him would feed him and care for him. Why would you want to leave a big crowd? Why would you want to leave the place that you're the most popular? And that's what he was thinking. But the Lord saw through that phony attitude. And that's when Jesus, our Father, corrected him and told him that the foxes had those holes and the birds have nests. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. In other words, I don't have a tour bus, no hotel reservation. And since you're accustomed to hanging out with the crowd, you don't have any intentions of following me. He was making an excuse. And then we see another thing happen in the next verse where another disciple, he seemed to have a legitimate excuse. He said, let me go home and bury my father, and then I'll come back and go with you. But Jesus said, no, you follow me now, and you let the dead bury the dead. There are seven types of death in the Bible, but the two I'm concerned with is spiritual death and physical death. When a person dies who has not believed in Jesus Christ, he has died death. He's died, but we are born spiritually dead. In other words, you're going to have to have two birthdays or you're going to have to have two deaths. Birthday one, that's the day you're born physically. Birthday two, that's the day you accept Christ. Death one, that's the day you die physically. Death two, that's the day you're cast in the lake of fire. Spiritually dead people are people that are born in Adam, and they need to be saved. And what he's saying is these folks, your father, he wasn't a believer. He's spiritually dead, so you let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. In other words, you don't have to go over there. You need to stick with me. Sometimes it's a matter of priorities. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead is what he's saying. You follow me. This man would not follow Christ. He could not risk not going to his own father's funeral, and he walked away. He just wanted Jesus to hold the boat till he got back the next day. That's what he wanted. Making excuses. You know, I was sort of like that as a kid. I grew up in a dysfunctional home. I, I really never knew my father. I have no idea who he was. And even though my mom loved me, I seldom saw her because she was a single parent trying to work a job, watch over me, and she farmed me out to different guardians who would keep me on a weekly basis. And finally, when I was about 12, some kids run away. I ran home. I didn't run away. I ran home. And I insisted that my mother let me stay with her. I wasn't going to live with any more strangers. And the opportunity for trouble was around every corner of my life. The only thing that really salvaged me was a football coach in athletics. A football coach who took an interest in me and encouraged me and got me to reach my full potential. But in spite of all these advantages, I still always made excuses. My grades were not good, but I wasn't dumb. I was just stupid. I didn't try. 
My work ethic was not good because I was lazy. And in the end, even though I had a full athletic scholarship to play football at the University of Alabama, after only one year, I walked away in a frantic search for happiness. I had some hope of finding my happiness down the my way highway, and that was wasted time. I'd sometimes lay in my bed at night and see the bad decisions I made, and but I didn't know how to make them go away. I never really thought about God. I didn't know God was there. I was always making excuses for my life. Maybe you've done that. All that changed the day I believed in Christ, the day I accepted Christ as my Savior. It was the time for me to get in that boat. Many believers find the challenge of following Jesus Christ to be too demanding. Sometimes it just interferes with their personal plans and their personal ambitions, and that's why I want to ask you, are you willing to get in the boat? Are you willing to make priority number one, following Jesus Christ? If you are, then this is what he said. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're going to be a risk taker, you've got to make a decision. And the decision is to acquire the mind of Christ. You have to have the courage to put priority number one, God's word, in your life. The Bible tells us to let us have the same mind that Christ had in Philippians 2.5. And in 1 Corinthians 2.16, the Bible is the mind of Christ. So when we learn the word of God, when we take the principles and the procedures that Christ taught us, then we begin to follow the protocol plan. And we have to learn one other thing. Those disciples that did get into the boat, the ones that followed him out onto the Sea of Galilee, they were indeed risk-takers, but they became boat-checkers. Yep, there was a terrible storm that came. Jesus Christ, the Lord, was asleep. The storm was raging. Those fishermen who had been on the sea many times were convinced they were going to die. And they woke him up saying, save us before we die. Matthew eight twenty three through 25. They were sure they were all going to drown. And our Lord was not panicked. He was fast asleep. You can show, see how tired he was as a, as a man. He had been up since dawn doing the Beatitudes and then healing everybody all afternoon, surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of people. And he was asleep in the middle of that storm. And then there they woke him up. Could he heal the sick? Sure. Could he cast out demons? Absolutely. Could he calm that storm? Yes. He said unto them, Why are you afraid? You don't have any faith, do you? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. Matthew eight twenty six. Listen to this psalm, Psalm thirty three eighteen. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our hearts shall rejoice in him because we've trusted in his holy name. The issue for those men on that boat was faith. They thought they were going to die and they didn't have any faith. And the solution was Christ, the Son of God. 
So they marveled when he calmed the storm, and they said, what kind of man is this that even the sea would obey him? The sea did obey him because he was God. Those disciples were actually in the safest place they could ever be, in a boat with Jesus. Now listen carefully. Christ is in you. You don't have to go get in the boat. He's already in you. He lives in you. And you can rest. Faith rest is problem-solving device number three in the protocol plan of God. If you don't know what the faith rest drill is, write to me and I'll send you a booklet that deals with it. But you must learn the faith rest drill. You must learn how to stand on the promises of God how to use a biblical rationale to secure your mind so you don't worry, and how to come to a biblical conclusion. Without faith rest, you will always panic under pressure. So you have to learn it. You have to learn how to be a risk taker and not to be afraid of dying. That's what they were afraid of. They were afraid of dying. And they had to learn not to fear death. You know how much they had to learn it? When they went across to the Sea of Galilee, they had to <clears throat> turn around, <clears throat> excuse me, and come back to the other side. They had to do it again. I mean, when you fail a test, don't you have to take it again? We should take encouragement from Peter. He was one of our finest disciples. The Lord, I mean, he loved the Lord. He constantly was following the Lord, and he had a brother named Andrew, and Listen, shortly before the Lord was crucified, things got really heated up. Peter got real scared and denied his relationship with Christ. That wasn't a surprise. The Lord told him he was going to do it. Peter thought he was no longer a disciple because he denied Christ. But he was still a disciple. Even though he failed him, even though three times he said, I don't know him, the Lord did not fail him. Jesus Christ will not fail you, even though you may have failed him. He promised that he would never leave you, he would never forsake you. So if you're going to live for him, you're going to have to be diligent to grow. You're going to have to have a hunger for God's word. You're going to have to learn the mind of Christ so you can replicate his thinking and you can represent Christ to your generation. My prayer is for people like that. I talk to hundreds and hundreds of people. Most of them say, nice sermon, preacher. They never get it. It never dawns on them what I'm talking about. Are you getting it? Is it making sense to you? Do you see the emptiness in your Christian life and the need to grow in grace and replicate Christ? Do you see that? Do you see what I'm talking about, the hunger to get under a qualified pastor and study and grow every day? Because without that, you're never going to become a spiritually mature believer. That's my prayer for you. I hope you're listening. hope you're paying attention. Thank you for listening to The Floodline with your host, Rick Hughes. If you'd like to contact Rick, please write to him at P.O. Box 100, Cropwell, Alabama, 35054, or online at www.rickhughesministries.org.